James chapter 4, beginning of verse 1. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions, you adulterous people. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? But he gives more grace. Therefore, it says God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. This is the word of the Lord. Think about your life for a moment. Have you ever been in a situation where you had come to your mind in a circumstance, just said, where did that come from? Maybe it was in a relationship with somebody. And you touched a raw nerve and all of a sudden there was an explosion. You think, where in the world did that come from? We were just having a conversation. You didn't even know you touched that raw nerve and something exploded out of somebody. You you block them in some way that caused them to lash out. I think we probably all had those circumstances. You have times when people have lashed out at you and maybe you caused it intentionally, but oftentimes it just happens. I can think of times in my life when somebody has lashed out in that way and I thought, where did that come from? But worse yet, think about your own life. You had times where you've thought in your own life in a circumstance that happened, an occurrence that in your life occurred, and you thought, where did that come from? Out of you. Not out of somebody else, but out of you. Where did that come from? Maybe you said it. Maybe the words fell off of your tongue, and you said something, and you thought, where did that come from? Maybe you merely thought it. But whether you thought it or said it, I think all of us have had times where we said, where did that come from? I think James gives us an answer. Look at verses 1 and 2. What causes quarrels? What causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? That's where it comes from. There's a war going on inside of us. All of us, all of us here in this room, and and uh, sometimes you see it when it comes out in that way, whether you said it or thought it. You thought, where did that come from? Where did it come from? It comes from those passions and things that are happening inside of you. You may have thought it came from outside of you. You may have wanted to blame something on the outside that stirred it up. But it came from inside. If it weren't in there, it would not have come out, whether you thought it again or said it, literally. It's not the external thing. That was just the catalyst that maybe made it come, but it didn't cause it. It isn't the root of it. The root of it is inside of us. And the scripture here clearly says there's a war that's going on inside of us. If you just go over one book in your Bible to First Peter, 
chapter one or chapter two and verse eleven, we we might want to say, well, that was before I was a believer, or before God took that heart of stone and made it a heart of flesh. Yes, but no. James is writing to believers here. He's writing to the church. So it's not just unbelievers. Certainly it comes out of them, but it comes out of believers, unfortunately, as well. There continues to be a war there. In verse 11 of chapter 2, it says, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles, as believers, to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which war against your soul. And here flesh, it's not talking about literal flesh, but the passions of your old nature, your old life, your, those, those grooves that you put in there in your life, the, the, uh, the sin that continues to remain in you that, that wants to wreak havoc in your life, wants to come out at times and does in fact come out at times. That war going on inside, oh, it's changed. Um, it, it, it is a war. There is a battle. And, and for a Christian, there sometimes is an intense battle because an, a new heart has been formed, a heart of flesh. But it's not a perfect heart yet. It still has to be formed and, and, uh, and dealt with. That's, that's why it's fleshy, so that it can be dealt with, so God can deal with it. That's what it means to live out the Christian life, is to, Participate in that process that God is making us more like himself. But in the midst of that, there's a war and, and we fight against that. I think it's what Paul said. I fought the good fight of faith. When he talked about that at the end of his life, he wasn't talking about the faith to believe initially in Christ, but rather that fight that began when he did believe that battle, that war that wages war within us. He was talking about that. He fought that fight of faith to trust God's promises, to come against those old patterns in his life. And so here James is, is talking to the church and he's saying that, that the dissension, the things that have entered in are coming because of things inside of you, because of a root of worldliness, really. Look at what it says in the text this morning. It says, you covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask with wrong, ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. And then he says, you adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Part of the root of worldliness is, is not external things, but it's hard issues. It's that heart that God has now made flesh and is beginning to change. That battle that wars in there. And worldliness comes from the heart. It's a matter of the heart. And here in the scripture it says that, that we're even in danger of praying about the wrong things. He says you have not because you ask not, but he says, and you, and when you do ask, you ask with wrong motives. The whole idea that people pray and, and bring a spiritual dimension to this worldliness makes it even worse. I think James is talking about you, you pray about this stuff that ought not to be, that, that is, is not right. 
and you pray with wrong motives. And he uses some strong language here in this text. He's, he's coming to the church and he's trying to address some problems in the church and he, he uses strong language where he says, you covet and you murder. Now, I don't think he means literally murder, but, but that kind of spirit that sometimes, where did that come from? Where did that, that rage come from? came from warring within and, and akin to wanting to murder. How can that be? And James would say it ought not to be. We need to come against that. But that was there. He talked about we're at enmity with God. He, he becomes our enemy in the sense when, when we let worldliness take over, when we, when we let that battle control us and we don't come against it. There's a spirit of worldliness in all of that. So that's the place that it takes us this morning in that whole desire, that whole battle that goes on. And what is that desire? In in the text now, it says this, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire, that word there, desire, is hedon, which is what the word hedonism comes out of. The, the whole idea, the whole thing stirring within us are, are the fact that even as Christians, we need to fight against those selfish kinds of desires, that self-centeredness that all of us are plagued by. And part of that process of God changing us and conforming us more to his image is us coming against that whole self-pleasing desire that is innate in all of us that we want to please me, that I want my needs and my desires to be number one. That whole idea of self-enhancement and self-advancement, it goes back to Cain and Abel. That's where we see the picture at the very beginning, where Cain and Abel, and Cain killed his brother Abel because somehow his desires got blocked. And it literally led to murder. But sometimes the attitudes that can be within us are akin to that. It's, it's the kind of anger that doesn't literally, although it potentially could, but, but it's that intense kind of emotion that can be stirred up and still prevalent within us, even as believers, that we need to come against. That whole idea of us wanting our own way. And part of what happens when God takes that heart of stone and makes it a heart of flesh is he begins to come against that powerful, powerful thing within us that wants our own way, that wants our own self-interest, wants to put ourselves first. And so God says to us, come against those fleshly desires that wage war within you. Come against them. Fight them, battle against that worldliness that wants to rise up within you. So the question this morning that I want to talk about for just a few minutes is, what's the answer to the problem? What, what do we do about that? We, we, what do we do as we realize that? As we ask the question, where did that come from? How do we come against that? How do we allow God to sanctify us, to move us through that process of becoming more like Him? How do we walk this Christian life in light of that? What's the answer? First of all, I think first place we have to start is I think there has to come a place where we just recognize it, where we just acknowledge it, 
that at times we say or we think, where did that come from? We realize there is still something residing within us that isn't fully fixed and it wants to raise up its head. And the root of that raising up his head is, I want my own way. I want it to be about me. And we must come against it. We must ask ourselves, what's going on in my heart? Do you do that regularly in your life? What's going on? Why, why is this troubling me? Why is this agitating me? Why, why is this happening? What, what am I wanting inside that isn't good? Let me give you an illustration of this. It fits me. Now, it it doesn't fit you, probably. I'm probably the only room it. This specific illustration fits me or potentially could fit me. But you have your own. So you think about in your realm of life, as I read this illustration, where that might be applicable to you in your life. It's all in the idea of what's going on in my heart. Listen to what this particular commentator writes. He says this, and I think he was one. He says, in the life of a full-time Christian minister, some may devote themselves to the activist pursuits of endless caring for the sick and house-to-house ministry to the unsaved and skimp sermon preparation. It may be called getting our priorities right, but it may simply be an exercise in self-pleasing. Others lock the study door behind them. When they descend the pulpit steps on one Sunday, they are already mentally climbing the same steps the next Sunday. They may say that the pulpit is the best place to exercise pastoral care and that they are putting first things first, but they may be, in fact, just indulging a passion. Do you see how complicated this is? Do you see how our hearts are so bent towards selfishness? We sometimes can think we are doing the right thing, even. And if we don't ask ourselves, if we're not aware of our hearts, it can be a selfish indulgence in what we like best. Is it wrong to visit the sick? Should we do that? Yes. Is it important that we and I spend time in sermon preparation? I'm just wing it on Sunday mornings? Yes. But then I have to know my own heart. And keep a balance. But where is that in your life? Where is it that sometimes on the surface it may look like, yeah, I'm doing the right thing. This is a wonderful thing. But at the heart of it is really just a selfish kind of intent. I'm pleasing myself here because I kind of like this. Easy. Do you, you see? You see how subtle it can be. How subtle this whole idea of of rationalizing things in our lives and beginning to not ask the question, "What's going on in my heart?" In regards to wanting to please myself, put myself first, indulge myself, self enhancement kinds of things. Where does it fit you? Maybe in your relationship with your spouse. Maybe you're helpful when you're doing something you like to do. But when you're asked to do something you don't like to do so much, you're much less helpful. Why is that? It's because of that war. 
It's because of that war that rages within. Or maybe your helpfulness is going to accomplish something for you down the way. And so you're willing to do that. You see how subtly this whole idea can enter in to our lives? So we must ask ourselves, what's going on in my heart? I can relate this to my marriage. I, I like things in order. I like things in, in boxes. I mean, I'm just wired that way. So I don't mind sometimes going behind my wife and doing that. But I realized in my marriage at times when I would want to be helpful and I thought I was being helpful, I really wasn't being very helpful. I was saying at times, you're inadequate. And my helpfulness was to help me, not to help her. I can still be vulnerable to that. And so can you. And so ask ourselves the question, what's going on in my heart? That's what I think begins to happen in our hearts when God takes a heart of stone and begins to make it a heart of flesh. He begins to cause us to ask those kinds of questions and to really ask them of ourselves. So the first thing, the first thing we must do, I think, to, to come against that battle and to win that battle is to first of all acknowledge it. Acknowledge our hearts. Acknowledge our propensity to comfort and wanting our own way. Secondly, the scripture says that we should pray. It it admonishes us to pray. He says, you do not have because you do not ask. So uh, the inference here is they're not praying. And I'll say more about that later, but I think we need to pray. If, if we want God to change our hearts, if he want us to come against this, we need to pray about coming against this. Ask God to help us to come against it. Um, ask God to change us. Ask God to make our hearts more fleshy, if you will, that illustration. Just, just simply start asking him to do that. Here in the text it says, and when you do ask, you ask with wrong motives. Again, Be careful that you're asking for your heart to get changed, not about somebody else changing. Sometimes we, again, can subtly in our prayers begin to pray about stuff that actually makes my life more comfortable. It's not about them or others, but it's about me. I think that's what he means. You ask with wrong motives. You need to know your heart even as you pray. And there are certainly extremes of that, but there are much more subtle things and ways that we can pray that are not right. Thirdly, I think we need to believe that God is really committed to answering prayers that are prayed properly and about the right things. In, in verse 5, I think that's what the text is saying. It says, or do you suppose... It is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us. I think this is the proper interpretation of that verse. You may have translations that, that translate it differently. I think this is the proper, that, that God is jealous for us to change. He is jealous for his people to come against this sin, this war that rages within them. He wants it more than we want it. He wants more than we want it 
for God, for us to come against that selfishness in our hearts. And so he will, as we read this morning, take a heart of stone, make it a heart of flesh, and cause us, that, that word this morning that we read in Ezekiel, he will cause us to walk after him. That's what I think God is desires to do. He wants to change us more than we want to change. He wants to answer proper prayers more than we even remember to pray them. God wants to work on behalf of his people. He does. There's never been a God like our God who acts or works on behalf of his people like our God does. He desires to do it, but he wants to work on the right things. He wants to work on the hearts of his people. He is desires to do that, to change those hearts. He's jealous to do that. He's jealous for a people who will have changed hearts. That gives me confidence to pray. So then the question is, what do we pray for? I said we'd come back to this. What do we pray for? We need to pray properly, not selfishly. We need to believe that God wants to answer that proper prayer more than we want it answered. So what is it that we ought to pray for? What is it that that God wants to do and wants us to ask for? I think, again, the text tells us, it says, He yearns jealously over the Spirit that He made to dwell in us, but He gives more grace. That statement right there. He gives more grace. What do we pray for? Pray for grace. Pray for grace. What's grace? We need to answer that question. I think it's not just the disposition of his heart. That certainly is grace. God, for all those in Christ, the disposition of his heart is to be gracious to a people. Gracious to a people who don't deserve it. That's what the gospel's about. If you're in Christ, if Christ has died for you and you have trusted him and his sacrifice for you, then God acts and disposition towards you is grace. He doesn't give you what you deserve. Gives you grace because of Christ. But it's more than that. It's more than the disposition of his heart. How he feels towards you. He literally, I think, God gives us grace. I think grace is more than the disposition of heart. It is actually a river that flows to his people. A river of strength. An ever-flowing river. The Niagara, Niagara Falls... If you go there, it just keeps flowing and keeps flowing and keeps flowing. It seems as though it has an eternal spring that will never dry up that flows. Now, that's not true. I mean, that is not eternal, but it appears to be. But that's a picture, a human picture of God's grace. It it just keeps flowing toward us. His strength will come to us. He gives more grace to those who ask. He gives more strength to those who ask. But here's what I think he gives. He gives the strength to do his will. He gives the strength for us to live for his glory. And to live for his glory is to not live for our own. Is to come against that selfishness within us and put his priorities first in our life. God wants to meet all of our needs, the scripture says. In Philippians chapter 4, let me read it to you this morning and, and let you hear it. It says this, And my God will supply every need of yours according to the riches 
according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. So what are our needs? Our needs are to live for his glory, to tell the truth about him. Our needs are that. And what God does is he gives us grace to do just that. He is willing to give us grace to live for his glory. And to live for his glory is the antithesis of living for our own, of our own selfish desires. And so you see, as we pray for grace, that ever-flowing river of strength, and we pray that we might live for his glory, God gives more grace. He will give more grace. Grace upon grace. Listen to the text this morning. Listen to these texts about grace. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, it says in Hebrews, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Grace to help in time of need. Not just disposition of his heart, but a river of grace, strength. Strength to help in time of need. John 1.16, for from his fullness we have received grace upon grace. And then one of my favorite texts is this. Listen to it. Listen to all the promises in this text. God is able to make all grace abound. Sounds a lot like it does in the book of James, doesn't it? All grace abound. He gives more grace. God is able to make all grace abound to you. So having all sufficiency, all sufficiency in all Um, in all things, at all times, you may abound in every good work. Again, the promise. Make all grace abound so that you'll have all sufficiency, all sufficiency, nothing lacking. In all things, again, all things, doesn't leave anything out. At all times, any moment of the day or night. You may abound in every good work. Isn't that a wonderful, glorious promise? So we come back. We come back to the text. You have not, what? You have not all grace abounding and all sufficiency in all things at all times because you don't ask. Because you don't ask. Think in your life, the last time you said, I can't do this. Did you pray? Did you ask God for grace? You have not because you ask not. The promise of God is that he will give more grace. Strength, help to come against that selfishness within us, to come against that insufficiency within us, to come against those things that would want to war against our souls. He will give grace. And I think oftentimes we squander the benefits of that promise because we just don't ask. We just don't ask. And my goal this morning from this text is that the next time you say, 
where did that come from? I can't do this. I just keep messing up or whatever it is that you'll ask for grace. The next time you're going to do something for him and you say, I can't do this, you'll just ask for grace. And that what you will find is that he gives it, that he does give it. It just almost seems too too simple to be true, doesn't it? You have not because you ask not. What do we ask for? That we have all the grace we need to live for his glory. I think God promises that. Why don't we ask? Sometimes we just don't think about it, but I think it concludes here this morning with this. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Sometimes we don't think about it, but other times I think it's because we think we're self-sufficient. Maybe self-righteous, but self-sufficient. We don't think we need him. We don't, we don't go to him. We don't show our dependency upon him. But then it says, but he gives grace to the humble. Who are the humble? Those that ask the question, what's going on in my heart? See their need. Go to him for grace and allow him to be their sufficiency. Allow him to give it and provide it. I hope that this week you find yourself in a place where you need to just say, God, I need your grace. I need your grace. And I trust your promise that you will supply it. It's a song we're going to sing. I think that fits it well this morning. It just simply says, Lord, I need you. Lord, I need you. Every hour I need you. Every hour. And the promise is, God is there and will be there and gives more grace. Let's stand together. Lord, I come, I confess, bowing here, I find my rest, and without you, I fall apart, you're the one that guides my heart. Lord, I need you, oh, I need you, every hour I need you, my one defense, my righteousness, oh God, is found is where you
my song to rise to you. When temptation comes my way, and as I see my need, I fall on you. Jesus, you're my hope and stay. And as I see my need, I fall on you. Jesus, you're my hope and stay. Lord, I need you. Oh, I need you. Every hour I need you. My one defense, my righteousness. people who have learned to ask that Lord we will call out to you we will even this week not not ask and I pray Father there will be testimonies from our lives that we will realize that it's just not lip service but that it's reality of you becoming a God who abounds in all grace to us and that we have all sufficiency in all things at all times for every good work you call us to do. In Jesus' name, amen. Go in God's peace.